Good morning, Woodland Hills, and all parishioners and others who are tuning in from some other means. It's good uh, to see all of you, and I'm glad that you made the choice to be here and worship together and, uh, and hear God's Word. We're uh, going to take a break a little bit from uh, the book of Luke for a couple weeks. I know that breaks some people's hearts, but uh, sometimes it's necessary. The deal here is this. We are coming out of, or hopefully coming out of, the worst recession uh, we've, this country's seen since the 1930s. Some argue that we're not at all coming out of it, we're just delaying it longer and longer, but we'll see how that pans out. But it's had an impact on, on all of us to some extent, and to some people to a large extent. Everyone's feeling pinched, some people are in absolute crisis mode. We did a survey uh, last November, to kind of find out how this is affecting our congregation. Here's, here's some of what we found the average income levels uh, of people in our congregation at Woodland Hills Church have dropped significantly in the last year. Many are feeling the pinch and some are in absolute crisis, having lost their home or, or job, car, and things of that sort. About one-fourth of our congregation is either unemployed or underemployed. Over 60% of the families that were surveyed here uh, said they'd like to be more generous with their giving to charities and to church, but they're strapped because of the debt they have. Over half the congregation says they live paycheck to paycheck. And uh, over 80% of you folks uh, said that you would like to have more guidance in teaching about finances and getting out of debt and, and budgeting issues and things of that sort. So we, we put together some things to help us think about this and move into a direction of bringing our finances uh, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And as part of that, we thought it would be good at this time to have a three-week series on kingdom economics. And that's what this is about. Kingdom economics, bringing the kingdom to our uh, finances. And I want to title this message a little bit ominously, Defying the Beast. It's kind of a foundational message for the, the uh, two weeks that will follow. And I want to just read this one passage to get us thinking about this. Uh, we'll come back to it a little bit later on. But Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon just means wealth. You can't serve both. Now apparently mammon is a sort of deity who wants to be served, tries to get us to serve it, and Jesus is saying, no, you cannot do it. You serve one or the other. Let's pray as we get into this message. Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium, the way you're working in their life so beautifully, whether they know it or not. And every person listening through podcasts or watching on television or some other means, I thank you, God, that you're ever-present, ever-active, always luring us gently and tenderly uh, into your kingdom. Continue that with this message. And Lord, we just pray that you would help, uh, use this message to help us get free. Maybe just wake up for the first time to the fact that we're in bondage. And that there's an Egypt all around us that we've been largely sold out to free us from the Egypt of financial oppression and bondage and free us to be people, God, who honor you with our words, with our actions, and even with our wallets and with our checkbooks and with our bank accounts. We submit it all to you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Kingdom economics. Uh, At the start, I want to say this, that when, when I talk about kingdom economics, I am not, not talking about what I think or what the, what I, or what the Bible says about the economy of the world. 
I'm not trying to advocate the new and improved best version of the world's economy. Kingdom economics doesn't compete with any version of the world's economics. Just like the kingdom of God doesn't compete with any version of the kingdom of the world. Kingdom economics is not uh, in competition with capitalism or socialism or communism or any, any other ism. It stands by itself. It, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an economics that's not of this world. And so I will in this message be saying a few things critical about capitalism. But I'm not saying that because I think that there's a, another form of economics that's superior to capitalism in the world. I'm not, I, I don't have any wisdom on how to run the world economically. Even the experts disagree on that. We're not talking about kingdom economics. I'm talking about how to live faithful before God with our economy, with our money. Actually, it's his money. How do we be faithful with that? I'll take some... Uh, I'll make some critical comments about capitalism, but I do it not because I'm trying to disparage it as opposed to socialism or some other economic system. I happen to think that in the fallen world, it's the system that works the best. But I'm critical of it because that is the system, the economic system, that most people hearing this message live under. And so it's the one we need to be most aware of and, frankly, the most paranoid about. Every economic, has, every economic system has good sides and bad sides. We need to be very aware of the downside of capitalism. For all of its positive stuff, it's got some downsides to it, and we need to be aware of that. So I'm going to make four preliminary points here, and then I'm going to end by bringing out two basic biblical principles. Uh, preliminary point number one, we need to be reminded of the fact that money is not evil in and of itself. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, the Bible says, but the Bible never says that money itself is evil. Money is just a more effective way of trading goods and services. Uh, money is simply quantified labor. You work and then, then you, it's expressed, the value of it's expressed in money, and now you can take that and, and go buy things with it. Whereas in a barter system that doesn't use a money currency, you've got to bring actual goods with you to trade and stuff like this. This is just a more efficient way of doing it. So money in and of itself is neutral. It's neither good nor evil. It just is. Secondly, and this might surprise a few people, wealth is not evil in and of itself. Now, what you do with your wealth can be good or can be evil, but wealth in and of itself is not an evil. Throughout the Old Testament, we find God blessing people tremendously with wealth. Abraham and Job and David and Solomon and others had tremendous wealth. And granted, that was part of an Old Testament covenant, but if, if wealth was uh, evil in and of itself, God could never bless people with it. God doesn't use e evil to bless people. Uh, it, it just is what it is. And so the fact that you have some wealth is not a reason to feel guilty. It's a reason to seek God about what you should do with it, but it's not a reason to feel guilty. Even in the New Testament, we find that the Gospels depict Jesus being supported by wealthy people. Read Luke 8. Some wealthy women were funding his ministry. That's how he got freed up to go around for three years and his disciples uh, without having to work. He had people supporting him. Uh, Jesus uh, hung out with wealthy people and never commented about the evil of their wealth. He, he went to extravagant weddings and changed the water into wine. He allowed for extravagant worship when he, he let people pour this expensive ointment on him. And, and he saw that as a positive thing. Wealth is not evil in and of itself. The same thing is true in the book of Acts, where you find people like Lydia and Barnabas, who were fairly wealthy people, and they were supporting the ministry of the early church. That's a good thing. That's the right use of wealth. And even Paul, he says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, and ain't that the truth. 
but to put their hope in God. God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So apparently it's not wrong to enjoy some of your wealth. Paul says that that's one of the reasons God gives us that wealth. Now he also wants us to be a blessing to others. But the fact that you have stuff that someone else doesn't have is not in and of itself an evil. We just have to submit it to God. So money is not evil in and of itself. Wealth is not evil in and of itself. But, and here's the big but, we've got to be aware that mammon is a seductive power. Now the word mammon, as I said earlier, is simply the Aramaic word for wealth. But Jesus, in the verse that we read, treats it as though it was itself a power, a deity, a principality and power. In fact, we know that that was a common view in the time of Jesus. Money is neutral in and of itself, but in a fallen world, it can become a tool of the enemy to deceive us and to enslave us and to corrupt us, which is why you find throughout the ministry of Jesus and throughout the New Testament Real serious warnings about the dangers of wealth. It's not intrinsically evil. It's not evil in and of itself. But it is dangerous because there's a principality and power that wants to use us to suck us in. And there's something about wealth that can dull our sensitivity to the poor. And that can make us more narcissistic and self-centered and greedy. And to just want to live our little vacation uh, self-centered lifestyle, a life of, of convenience, rather than being radical disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to be aware of the seductive power of wealth because there's a spiritual force at work to use it to compromise us and to deceive us and to corrupt us. Point number four, which I'll spend a little more time on, is this. We who are hearing this in America or Europe, really any, any part of the West, we need to understand that we're part of a system that has been feeding the beast, mammon. Jesus treats it as sort of a seductive beast. We've been feeding the beast, mammon, for a long time, and it is strong. Now here we need to see the big picture. Um, several months ago I preached this uh, message on, on racism and, and said there that, that if you want to understand race dynamics today, you've got to understand something of the history of race relationships and oppression in America. So also, if we're going to understand the beast that we're called to defy, the beast of mammon, we need to understand something about the history of our feeding this beast uh, that's led up to our present time. We can't understand where we're at, how we got in the mess that we're in right now, unless we understand a little bit about the history of this. So I'm going to here give an uh, 8 to 10 minute uh, a brief history of economics in the Western world. Where else can you go to church and get that? I'm telling you. How lucky are you? And this is going to be grotesquely simplified because economics can get very complicated. But I, I want us to see the big picture here. Some people may be surprised to find out that the Western world hasn't always operated under capitalism. In fact, for over a thousand years, the economic system of the West was called feudalism. Feudalism. And what it basically amounted to was this. Most peasants, constituted 98% of the population, they simply worked a, a plot of land, a plot of land that was called a, a manor. And in the center of that manor would be a feudal lord, like a prince or a king. And the deal was this. The peasants worked the land, gave the king a good portion of the produce that they uh, got uh, to make that king wealthier, and in exchange, he would protect them. 
Now, the, the king or, or the prince owned everything, uh, but these folks were allowed to live there in, in, in security because if the barbarians ever invaded, he would call his vassal buddies. That was that whole knight system that they had going on in the Middle Ages, and they would come and defend uh, uh, the, the manor. That was the basic economic system. And what's important for us to see here is this. In that economic system, no one expected the future to be any different than the present. It wasn't going to be better. It wasn't going to be worse. It was just going to be the same. People found significance in their life not by looking into the future, but by looking towards the past. Some historians have said that up until about the 14th century, people faced the past, not the future. And so you remember what Jesus did for you, whatever. That gave your life significance. But you didn't look to the future to find significance at all. You were looking towards the past. Uh, most people were born and lived and died on that same manor, that same roughly 1,000 acres that, uh, that, that they worked. Uh, rarely did people leave that, only to go on a pilgrimage perhaps once in their lifetime. But basically, they lived on these manors, and that was it. And so you did what your father did, what your grandfather did, what your great-great-great-grandfather did, and so on and so on, and nothing ever changed. Now, for reasons that are way too complex to get into right now, that began to change in around the 12th, 13th, 14th century as we moved into what's called the Renaissance period. For, for a variety of reasons, people began to be more this-worldly focused. Before that, you just worked the land and waited till you died, and then you went to heaven. But now people started to want to have a better life now, which means they began to face the future. People got tired of working the land for that uh, feudal king, uh, they wanted uh, to, to earn their own money and get their own skills. So more and more people moved off of those manors, moved into towns. We find towns springing up all over the place in the 13th and 14th century. They learned to trade. They wanted to be their own boss, make their own money, own their own property, and, and determine their own destiny and have a better future for themselves and their family. And so they were starting up businesses based on whatever trade they had. Now to start those businesses, and here's what's important, most of them had to borrow money. And so there were wealthy people who would invest in these businesses, but they would charge interest to make money on the money they loaned. And this is really the advent of this economic system we call capitalism. It's called that because it produces capital. It produces wealth. Uh, the word credit, people were buying things on credit now. Starting in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, they start businesses on credit, they would buy on credit. The word credit comes from the Latin word that means to believe or to trust. And this takes us to the heart of capitalism. It's a trust in the future, a confidence in the future. I can't afford it now, but I will be able to later on. So you invest in, you, you're borrowing from the future to invest in the present, to have a better present, and create the better future that will be able to afford the investment that you just got. So people were loaning on credit, people were borrowing on credit, and all of it's based on a confidence that the future will get better and better and better. And that's the heart of capitalism. Now what's interesting is that today most Americans for sure, uh, uh, most American Christians especially, tend to believe that capitalism is sort of God's economy to the point where if you question it as the best economy, you're viewed as being sort of heretical, cer certainly anti-American. Um, but what's interesting is that it was mainly Christians at this time, 13th, 14th, 15th century, who were paranoid about capitalism, had a lot of reservations about capitalism. Some actually thought it was of the devil. Luther, for example, said this. He says, how can we buy into this economic system when the Bible explicitly forbids ever giving a loan with interest? Exodus 22. 
And Jesus said, if you're my disciple, when, when, when someone asks to borrow something, give it to them and don't expect anything in return. This seemed like a complete violation of biblical principles to Luther, the, 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 the reformer. And then he said, capitalism runs on discontent. You know, you've got to always be wanting more. That's how it runs. That's what fuels it. And, and, and yet the Bible says we're to be content with what we have. So, so this is really not a good system. It makes a, a, a virtue out of a vice. Greed. You want more. It, it, it makes greed sort of the engine that runs everything. So a lot of Christians at the time really were against it. The church up to this time had forbidden ever giving a loan with interest. It was against their law. But under the pressure of the populace, it lifted that band and uh, began to move in this direction. The advocates of capitalism said basically this. There is nothing that motivates ingenuity, creativity, and hard work like self-interest and that perpetual drive to, to have more, to have it better, and to leave your family your future family with uh, life better than you had. Nothing motivates people like that. And they were right. And so capitalism was wildly successful. Caught on very, very fast. What we need to understand is that America was founded with this capitalistic spirit from the get-go. Columbus uh, stumbled upon this land that we eventually conquered. The Europeans eventually conquered. But it was a business venture. He was trying to find a more economically advantageous route to India. It was with dollar signs in his eyes that he stumbled upon this land. And most of the people who came here came here with dollar signs uh, in, in their eyes. Uh, they, they, they took on credit, some loans to get here, and, 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 and got established here as a business venture. Some folks came because they were fleeing religious persecution. That's true. But even the pilgrims on the Mayflower had to borrow the capital to get here. We've been running on credit from the get-go. Uh, most of the early expeditions, they're, they're, in fact, all of them, were, were, were economic enterprises. And wealthy people would put up funds to support these folks going out in these economic ventures, expecting that, that they'll get paid back uh, based on you know, the commerce that these folks could, could generate. Uh, Minnesota here was, was, was uh, in the early days, very early days, uh, really settled by people who were in the fur trade. We had this beaver fur, and it was really popular to have these beaver hats, beaver fur hats in England. So the, the, the po folks who made the hats would send out the explorers up here to get these, uh, you know, this beaver fur. And Fort, Fort Snelling was, was founded largely as a, as, as a way, or expanded largely as a way, of protecting the fur traders. And they made all these deals with the, the, the natives uh, who would be catching these beavers and, and whatnot. Trouble is, as soon as the beaver hats became unpopular... Uh, there's no longer any need to be trading with the uh, indigenous population. And that relationship with, went south here very, very fast. But the point is that from the start, it was an economic, uh, capitalistic endeavor. Uh, some people have this, this kind of mythology that once upon a time in the golden age of America, back when we were a Christian nation, you know, um, uh, people would never bought stuff they couldn't afford. They, you know, no, no, they, 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 they were frugal. They were thrifty. And that's certainly more true back then than it is today. That's not saying much. Uh, but from the get-go, people were borrowing. Credit was the way of life here. The farmers had to uh, get credit from stores to eat while they're, they're you know, waiting for their harvest. And if that harvest didn't come through, they were in serious trouble because they had this, these things back then called debtor's prison. And these folks would be thrown into debtor's prisons and their families enslaved and all sorts of other things to pay off that debt. But from the get-go, we've been borrowing. We find even in the early 1800s, stores were selling stuff on payment plans. 
That new buggy, that new, that, that new bed, that cabinet, that plow, you don't have to save up to buy it. No, no, if you can afford the payments, we'll give it to you now. It's all based on a faith in the future that you maybe can't afford it now, but you will be, if, if, if only you invest now and take a risk now, it will pay off later. And from the get-go, it's been like that. The Industrial Revolution pumped tremendous energy into capitalism. It got bumped up a big notch with the Industrial Revolution, with the creation of these factories that could, could, could make buggies and, and, and railroad trains and eventually cars. In these factories, people got off the farm, got in these factories. Now people were finding ways to make it bigger and faster and better and more and more efficient. And the future began to look like it was an unlimited resource to borrow against. This is what capitalism is all about. It looks just unlimited, incredible optimism now. And when we get to the 20th century, folks... You could describe it as the 20th century is a century where capitalism went on steroids. Um, It was just off the charts. For a lot of reasons, I'll just mention two. One is this. After World War II, there was an unprecedented economic boom in this country. Wars have always proven economically advantageous to the winner. After World War I, we had the Roaring Twenties. After World War II, we had the Roaring Fifties. And it was really unprecedented... um, uh, economic growth. Houses became affordable to people who previously couldn't afford houses. Credit became available to people who before would never dream of getting things on credit. The credit card was invented in the roaring 50s. The standard of living soared for almost everybody, almost all white people, that is. Uh, minorities were cut out of this whole economic expansion at this point. Um, but it was just, it set an unprecedented bar of wealth and prosperity that we've been trying to sustain for the last 60 years. And we're finding it harder and harder to sustain. My dad was a tire salesman. Not the most wealthy job in the world, but he was able to support a family of six in a fairly nice-sized house in Cottage Grove, Minnesota, on that one salary. I don't think you, 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 in fact, I know you could not do that today. A tire salesman supporting a family of six in a nice house. Plus, he had a boat and all these other trinkets he liked to, to, to uh, collect. His philosophy really reflects the philosophy of the 50s. That carried over in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. In fact, it's still with us to some degree to this day. My dad would say this, and he and my stepmother fought ferociously over this one. My dad would say, his philosophy was, don't ask what it costs, ask what the monthly payment is. And he thought that was being smart. I want to tell you that, you know, with all due respect, Dad, that is not a smart way to live. It's like living life on lease. You know, you're just constantly paying off stuff. But that was, that was a widespread philosophy. Everything was bought on credit. A second thing that happened that's very important was the invention of the television, its invasion into the American home, and with it came the invasion of commercials. I would like everybody who is hearing this message to watch this uh, documentary, a BB, BBC documentary called The Century of Self, an incredible documentary. It and a number of other resources basically shows this. Beginning in the 30s and 40s, Edward Bernays, who was Sigmund Freud's nephew, and a number of other people applied some new understandings of how the mind worked with, with psychoanalysis and the uh, psychology of crowd control, and they, they, they made it into a science of media. Took it to the media and asked the question, how can we use media, this new availability of commercials and whatnot, Uh, to control people. And what they're looking for, and they were very explicit about this, is this. Um, We want to use media to create a society of consumers. And now that term began to be used frequently. We want people to see themselves, understand themselves, feel themselves to be consuming units who are perpetually hungry for more. 
They, we want them to feel their wants as though they were desperate needs. So they buy the products that we're promoting. And behind it all was a sort of pseudo-good motive, which was this, a capitalistic motive, that if you have people who are perpetually hungry, then the treadmill speeds up. You create more, people are become more ingenious, uh, have more creativity on how to make money. They'll borrow more, they'll spend more, and that creates, that's good for the whole system, and then we have unlimited wealth here to borrow against the future. And so for the last 60 years, we've been bombarded with propaganda, all of it being designed to convince us that at our heart we are consuming units, all of it being designed to convince us uh, to feel our, our, our whimsical little wants as though they were needs. Uh, all of it being designed to convince us that we deserve to have it now. All of it being divine, uh, designed to convince us that even if we can't afford it now, we will be able to afford it later because the future gets better and better and better and better. We've been programmed, conditioned to feed this beast. We've been programmed to serve the God mammon. We've been programmed to live life in a perpetually hungry mode. And so it's not really surprising, is it, that the average American lives far beyond their means. Uh, we, individually, and our whole culture, and our government, yes, our government, lives more and more on credit. We borrow to sustain an opulent lifestyle in the present with the hopes that we'll be able to afford it later on. We live beyond our means, hoping that the future will pay it off. Why wait till then to have the benefits? Let's have it now. We'll borrow against the future, and eventually we'll be able to afford it. The trouble with that is this. As we all know on a personal level, the future is not an unlimited resource you can borrow against. Like everything else in creation, it's finite. It has limits. You eventually have to pay. Somebody eventually has to pay. It's a little bit like this. My dad tried this once uh, in his life, uh, where you, you take out a credit card, you max out the credit card. So then you take out another credit card with a little bit more credit, and you pay off the first credit card, and then you spend the rest buying whatever you want to buy. Well, then you max out that credit card, so you open up another credit card, but now your credit rating is getting better because you already paid off two credit cards. So now you can get more on the credit card, you pay off that second credit card, and whatever's left over, you, you know, buy your toys. Well, then that credit card gets maxed out, so you buy, open up another credit card, and you can keep that baby going for a long, long time. But eventually, it catches up to you, and it did. Eventually, people want to get paid, and, and, and not just on someone else's credit, and the system, the bubble bursts. The system collapsed. There's payday. Something like that happened in 2007, at least in significant areas of our economy. The beast has bit us, and some feel that bite certainly more than others. And it's bad, and it's tough, but it's not altogether bad. Because this season that we're in right now gives us an opportunity to step back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. It gives us an opportunity to step back, in fact, the obligation as kingdom people to step back and ask the question, have we, have we been seduced by the beast? Have we been co-opted by the powers? Have we been played by the system? And it gives us a chance to reevaluate our money and what we do with money how we steward it, how consistent it is with the values that we hold. So now, what do we do? And we'll be giving more practical tips in the weeks to come, but right now I want to give two basic biblical teachings on this, foundational biblical teachings, to help us really frame this in the right way. Number one, 
wake up to the real battle, the real battle. As we often say here at Woodland Hills Church, we need to construe everything in the context of cosmic war. Paul says in Ephesians 6, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We live, this is real, folks, this isn't metaphor, this isn't pretend. We live in a world that's caught in the crossfire of a cosmic war. That's a real thing. There are principalities and powers, high-ranking angelic authorities, that are at, in, at civil war with God, and yet they have authority over aspects of creation and over aspects of society, including money, and the one over money is called mammon. That means money, though it is neutral in and of itself, in this fallen war zone context, it's got this magnetic power, as I mentioned before. It wants to be our Lord. It wants to rule us. It wants to control us. It wants to make us slaves. And it's good at it. It deceives us into bondage, undermines our effectiveness. It can destroy us in the most subtle and clever ways. It takes us out of the game. I've seen it dozens of times. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, nice Christian family, typical middle-class Christian family. He gets a little bump in pay, and boy, it feels like they're really rich. And they, they and their two kids have been living in this kind of tiny house, so they want to get a little bit bigger house. And they could get by with just a little bit bigger house, but there's this really much bigger house that, that is so nice in a great neighborhood, and it's got all the you know, nice things on it, and, and, and they just fall in love with it. So even though they can't really afford that, they can't afford the mortgage payments per month, especially if they get this, this kind of like balloon arm that they have later on, and they'll be able to afford it later on because they'll keep getting pay raises, of course. So they buy the house. But now, since it's a bigger house, they've got to furnish the house. You don't want a nice-looking house with no furniture in it. So now they've got to go out and buy all this furniture. They can't afford that either. Fortunately, they can get it on credit. And they can't afford, they think, the monthly payments. So now they've got a nicely furnished house. Yay. Well, then the car breaks down. They've got to get a new car. They could get by with a, with a used car or a slightly bigger car. But instead, there's this car. It's got these nice bells and whistles on it. And, oh, they just love it. They fall in love with it. And so, boom, they get the car. They can't really afford it, but they can't afford the monthly payments. They buy it on credit. And, you know, little Johnny and Sue, you know, they're going to junior high school, and, and junior high is tough on everybody, so you want them to have the best clothes, you know, because you want them to be popular. So you don't go to the thrifty stores to buy hand-me-down clothes. No way. You go to Abercrombie and Fitch or, or what have you, and, and, and you buy this clothes. You can't really afford the clothes, but they accept payment plans, and so you buy it on credit. Yay. And you take vacations on credit, and then when Johnny's got to go to school, he could get by with a community college or a local university or something of the sort, but he got accepted in this really hot shot school. It's $45,000, $50,000 a year. You can't afford that at all, but thankfully there's these student loans, and, and you can't really afford the, the, the payments now either, but, but surely when, when Mr. Smith gets that raise or Mrs. Smith gets that raise, they'll be able to afford it then, and so on, and so on, and so on. And before you know it, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, despite the fact that he makes a pretty good living, they are slaves. They are living paycheck to paycheck. They are, are in bondage to mammon. There's no money left over at the end of the month to give away. And they've always wanted to be a generous couple. They understand the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. They've always wanted to be big givers, and, and they used to be, but now they just find that there's nothing left over for charity, for the poor, for, for the church, nothing. In fact, there's hardly any time left over because now Mr. Smith has to work a little harder and Mrs. Smith has to work a little harder. So they spend less time with the kids. They spend less time with each other. The whole stress of the situation causes marital problems. Financial stress is the number one problem in uh, uh, couples that, that end up in counseling. So now they've got to pay the marriage counselor on top of everything else. <laughs> they've become slaves to mammon. He owns all their time, all their affections, all their energy. They don't have time for friends. They don't have time to volunteer in the church. They don't have time for kingdom community. They have been reduced to little mice on the treadmill 
tre treadmill chasing the elusive dream of the, uh, elusive cheesy of the American dream. And so in various ways, that's just one little snip of one family, but in various way, ways we have been put in bondage to this beast. And I'm just saying this morning, it's time for us to defy that beast. We've got to defy the beast. We've got to defy the beast. Amen. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And this is real. This is war. We're sometimes inclined to, to blame flesh and blood. Those nasty execs, top executives of these big banks who give themselves all these bonuses, and bad execs and bad banks and bad corporations, and we want to blame that or blame our employer who won't give us a raise or blame our grandparents who won't give us a loan or, or, or blame somebody, maybe just blame capitalism in general, but that's really not the target. Not that I commend any of, any of that, but the real battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There's a beast. We're part of a system that's been sucking us dry for a long time. We're part of a system that's been feeding this beast for a long time. We have been systematically conditioned to always want more and more and more and better and faster and want to now. We have been, to a large degree, dehumanized by this beast and reduced to being little tiny mice on the proverbial treadmill chasing the cheese, the ever-elusive cheese of the American dream. It's time to defy the beast. I believe it's time to get mad at this beast, to realize we've been being played for too long. This beast is sucking life out of us, sucking joy out of us, sucking relationships out of us, sucking kingdom effectiveness out of us. It's been oppressing us. It's time to get mad and to defy this beast, to wake up to the reality of the warfare and realize that we have been being played. It's time that we realize that what we do with our money, our budget, it's a moral issue, a moral issue, as much a moral issue as whether or not you're going to cheat on your spouse or, or, or abuse your kids or anything else. It's a warfare issue. What you do with your budget is either going to be a weapon for the kingdom or against the kingdom. And it's in our laps as to what we're going to do with it. Which leads to the second point, and that is just this. It's time to break the silence. Here's the odd, odd, weird thing about mammon. And a lot of social commentators have noted this. There's this compulsive secrecy we have got. Privacy, this compulsive privacy about mammon, about money. You can take friends who've been together for a long time, gotten really intimate with one another. They're very free with one another. Friends who talk about their, their, their marriage issues. They talk about their sex life, even their sex problems. They'll talk about their hemorrhoid issues and other kind of health issues. I mean, these people are just free. There's no issues there. But the minute someone pokes their finger into finances, you get this back off, Jack, keep your hand off of my stack kind of attitude, as Pink Floyd said. What's going on here? What is it with this? You all know what I'm talking about. It's weird. We are, we are very much like, like, like Gollum, or Gollum in, in, in the Lord of the Rings. We've got our precious. Nobody looks at our precious. The precious is mine. My precious is mine. Which is all, in and of itself, that's all you need to know that something funky is going on here. Anything that makes us that private and secretive can't be good. It can't be kingdom. Something's going on, on there. I think we've got a lot of fear around finances. If people found out about our precious, they might want part of our precious because we got more precious than they got. Maybe we're afraid that if they saw our precious, we'd be embarrassed because of how small our precious is when we put a lot of energy in making it look like we got a big precious. 
Or maybe we've got a really huge precious and we try to keep it looking small so we're afraid people will feel intimidated or jealous if they find out about our precious. Or maybe we're afraid that they'll judge our precious and the way we use our precious. If we invite anybody in on our life, well then we might not be able to just buy the way we want to buy. And all of a sudden that second boat or second cabin or what have you, maybe there'll be somebody who will say, are you sure about that? We We want that American right to buy what we want to buy now. Precious. My precious. Something's going on. We've got to see this. Folks, here's a universal principle. Secrecy always feeds the beast. Secrecy, hiddenness, always feeds the beast. Satan's called the prince of darkness for a reason. He needs darkness to be empowered. He needs darkness to operate. Uh, It's like I said last week with regard to anger. Anger is not a sin as long as you're dealing with it out here in the open. But when we go to bed with it, when the sun falls on it, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, we give the devil a foothold into our life. We've created a, 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 a room of privacy, darkness in there, and now the enemy can begin to use that anger to destroy us and tear us apart. It's by secrecy that mammon controls us. It's by secrecy that mammon isolates us and deceives us and shames us. It's time to defy the beast. It's time to defy the beast. And part of what it means to defy the beast is to start getting open and real about our finances. Look, at if, if all of our life comes from Jesus Christ, and it must, this is what it means to be under the reign of God. Uh, Jesus Christ is the source of all of our worth and all of our significance and all of our meaning and, and all of our, 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 our security. And if that is true, if that is true, we have got, among all the people on the planet, we've got nothing to hide, nothing to conceal. There is no shame. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, which means if Christ is our life, we are empowered to be open and honest and real about everything. If I'm getting my life from Christ, I'm not getting it from how big my house is or how nice my car is or how good my clothes is, and I'm not getting life from what you think about me, for good or bad, which means I'm empowered to be just a real person and have it out there in the open. And that is what allows us to be healed and to become whole. The philosophy we have throughout this church, we use it at the refuge. It's true of every area of our life. If you want to get off the drugs, you first got to get real about the drugs. You got a a sex addiction, you first got to get real and honest and open with others about that sex addiction. And so it is for your rage control problem and for your bitterness and for your violence and your relationship issues or food issues or, or what have you. If we can't get real and honest about it, well... We'll never get out of it. But just getting honest about it, even though you don't have any idea of how you're going to get out of it, just being honest about it turns the light on, which means the darkness is exposed. And you've just disempowered the beast. And now you're going to be empowered to begin to see, have a wisdom to walk out of that. This, this financial crisis that we've been a part of is the perfect time to blow the beast up, to turn on the light, to get honest, to get real. Time to come out and say, I'm Greg Boyd. And I am a recovering shopaholic. I, 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 my name is Greg Boyd, and I, I'm a, for, a former slave of mammon. Didn't even know it, but I'm a slave of mammon. I'm, I'm Greg Boyd, and, 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 and I'm a recovering hypercapitalist. Bought into the system hook, line, and sinker. But, but I'm Greg Boyd, and I'm forgiven, and I get my life from Jesus Christ, so I'm free, which is why I can tell you about it. And see, this is the road to freedom. Until, until we get real with where we're at, there's really very little hope that we're going to move beyond where we're at. We'll just keep on cycling and wondering, well, how come I'm always in this, this rut? We've got to get real. Uh, for some folks here, the start to getting real will be finding out what real is. Because there's a lot of us who don't know 
what's real with our finances. You don't know what happens to your money. You're always scratching your head at the end of the month. What happened to it all? Uh, and the first, the first step then would be to, say, to, to, to track it and to say, what is happening with every nickel and dime that we have? And spend a month doing that. I would encourage you to do that. You might be shocked to find how much money you flush down the toilet. Uh, you know, th- those, those little fast food stops, they add up. All that little stuff adds up. That, that the Starbucks that you get, you know, three times a week, man, that 15 bucks right there. And it all adds up. And you might be amazed to find out how much, that, how much of this that you're not keeping track of is really strapping you. First step is to get real. And so we have out at the Hub a budget sheet for folks. We're going to get real practical here. That will help you sort of itemize issues, uh, 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 itemize your spending throughout a month. To track it, to find out what is real, to get honest with it. I want to encourage couples to do this together. One of the things I've been surprised to find out is how, how often it is that once the spouse who controls the finances keeps the other one in the dark. And more often than not, but not always, it's the man who's controlling the finances and the wife doesn't have a clue where the money's going. In my family, it's the other way. My wife does the finances, and I don't have a clue. But that's okay because I'm a zero when it comes to finances anyways. But, but whatever the, it, it, sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's because the person running the finances likes the control. Because now they get to spend without any account, uh, accountability. In Jesus' name, stop that. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'll be really, you know, sophisticated here. Knock it off! That's bad. That's really bad. That's not good for a marriage. You both... You both have to answer before God with, uh, where these resources go. And so both, it's, it's natural for one person who's good at the number crunching to be the one you know, paying the bills and stuff. That's normal. That's good. That's, that's give-based ministry. But there shouldn't be any hiding going on. So do this together. And then I would encourage you, whether you're married or single, to pray about finding someone or some group of people that you can trust enough to let in on your precious however little your precious may be, however big it may be, um, to break the silence around that precious. I know in America this is tough. We, we are individualists to the core, and, and, and nowhere does it come out more than with our money. And to trust someone enough to actually tell them what you make uh, and how it gets spent, let alone to ask them to help you bring your values and your economy in line with uh, the kingdom, as you help them, that takes tremendous trust, and it doesn't happen overnight, and it can't be forced. But I, I, I want to encourage all of us to be praying. The fact, look at the fact that it's so hard, shows you just how thoroughly in bondage we are to the beast. It shouldn't be that hard. I was just told last service from some folks who come from from China that in a communist country they've got all sort. They, they got their own set of problems for sure, but. We, they say that when they meet people, one of the first things they ask is, oh, how much do you make? <laughs> that, that's an icebreaker. How much do you make? How much do you pay for rent? And how much do you weigh? <laughs> that's what they told me. <laughs> you guys are all saying, man, I'm glad I don't live in China. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that would be preferable to this situation where you can know someone for 20 years and you still aren't given permission to say, oh, by the way, how much do you make and where does it go? See, there's something very dysfunctional about that. It's time to break the silence. Now, we, we uh, are really trying to get our, our hearts and minds around this. Uh, a little tweaking here and there isn't going to do it. We need to take on this beast, defy this beast. So to help with that, we've got three handouts at the hub. Actually, four. <laughs> okay, so we've got, on one hand, a budget. For folks who need to track uh, where the money's going, 
There's a budget out there uh, that will just itemize things, help you with that. Secondly, for families that are closer to that crisis mark, where you're having trouble putting food on the table or staying in the apartment uh, or staying in the home, there's another sheet out there that just gives resources on where you can go to get some help. We do the best we can here at Wilderness Hills Church. And by the way, thank you for your tremendous response in bringing in food the last three weeks to store up our food shelves. We feed as many as we can here, but we can only do so much. And so this is a sheet that's got all sorts of different ministries on, on thrifty clothes and food and, and, and things of that, uh, of, of that sort. Thirdly, there's a little sheet of paper that, that is a questionnaire there uh, for you to ask questions on. Uh, on the third week, we want to be answering questions that you have. We may even try to integrate that with next week's sermon. So if you have questions that you'd like to have answered about finances, write that out and turn it, on, uh, turn it in uh, at the hub. And the final thing we have is a, a, an assignment sheet for people to chew on this message a little further and to go further with it. We encourage people to be doing that throughout the week. I'm going to close in prayer. And as I do so, it's kind of asking the Holy Spirit to seal this message on our heart. I want to invite the prayer teams to come up here. And if you're here and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I want to encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. Or if you just want to pray at the altar, you're free to do that as well. But join with me here as I close this service this way. Holy Spirit, seal this on our heart. The minute we walk out these doors, we enter the pollution zone where we will again be bombarded with propaganda uh, trying to reduce us to little consumeristic mice on a treadmill. Holy Spirit, protect us. Wake us up to the reality of the warfare around us. Holy Spirit, seal this message. Help us not to forget it. Holy Spirit, bug us. If we start to go into our, our little mindless mantra about gotta have, gotta have, gimme, gimme, gimme now, God, wake us up, wake us up, wake us up. Lord, I know there are folks here who are really under this burden. They don't have a clue as to how they're going to get out of it, and that's okay. Right now, Lord, I just pray that you'd, you'd, you'd seal in their heart a passion to defy the beast for all of us. Those listening through podcasts as well, seal in our hearts a passion to defy this, the beast, to buck this system, to swim upstream, to really reflect the firstness of the kingdom in our finances. To honor you, not just with our words and our, our deeds, but God, with our wallet, with our bank accounts, with our jobs. We commit it all to you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. God bless you guys. Go out and build the radical kingdom.